morning we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we'll finish up this chapter and move in a few verses in, verse, in chapter 6. Galatians chapter 5. Shortly after 9-11, my youngest brother enlisted into the Marine Corps and he went on to boot camp and graduated, graduated as one of the top marksmen. And we went down to his graduation there in Paris Island and it was one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed in person. You have a group of young men uh, who are transformed from ordinary civilians into some of the best soldiers in the world. And part of the graduation ceremony um, included the Marines marching in formation. And that was very powerful. Now, um, now if you think about that situation, perhaps you've been or witnessed something like that in person, how effective would my brother, for example, be if he was always concerned about how many more steps he had ahead of him before he had a turn and what was going on ahead of him? You know, picture him somewhere in the middle of the pack and he's kind of stepping out of line, kind of trying to see what's going on in front of him and, and making sure that everybody else is in line. It would uh, create much chaos. And uh, think about it, if everyone was doing that, if all the soldiers were doing that in his group. You see, as a soldier, your job is to keep in step with the commands that you're given, given by the commanding officer. And, and for us, we have a job to keep in step with the Spirit. That's what this passage is going to command us to do. We won't always know exactly how far we're going. We just listen to the command so that when he says to turn, we turn. Right? We don't step out of line, make sure everybody else is in line. Our job is simply to obey the commands of, the, of our commanding officer. And um, the Galatians believers, the believers here in the region of South Galatia had come to Christ by hearing with faith. And they had received the Spirit who would empower them to do service for Christ, but they had gotten off track because of their following of these false teachers. And they began to think that, that their own works were what were necessary in order to remain a Christian. And Paul reminds them of what spirit-led life looks like, what it means and what it looks like. It does not look like a person who is continually practicing the deeds of the flesh, like we saw last week in verses 19-21. through 21. But rather, it looks a spirit-led believer looks like a person who is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so we saw what they looked like. We also saw what the Spirit-led life means, and that it means that we have a battle going on within us, that we have a war going on within us between the Spirit, who's trying to get us to do the spiritual things, that He has spiritual desires for us, and then the flesh, our own sinful desires, and they are at war within us. And this week we'll look at the same sort of overall structure, what the Spirit-led life means in this passage, and then what it looks like. So let's uh, read this passage and then I'll show you how I think we can uh, understand it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. This is the Word of God. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful challenging one another, envying one another. 
Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. In this passage, Paul teaches us that spirit-led believers serve others by reducing the burden of others. Spirit-led believers serve others by reducing the burden of others. Last week we saw the two main points. The spirit-led life means that we are at war we, we, are, we live in a war, war zone. We have a war zone inside of us. And then we saw that the Spirit-led life looks like not practicing sinful deeds, but exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, practicing righteousness. And this week we'll see what the Spirit-led life means and then what it looks like. So first, what does the Spirit-led life mean in this passage? Verses 25 and 26. It means that we must keep in step with the Spirit. If we are led by the Spirit as believers, it means that we must be led or we must keep in step with the Spirit. It's a command that's given. Notice verse 25 of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So, notice it's a command. We must walk by the Spirit is the idea there. The word walk here is a different Greek word than is normally used, and it has the idea of of walking in line or keeping in step with. That's why I began with that opening illustration that we need to keep in step with what the Spirit wants us to do. That's the idea of this work when it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also, we could supply the words, keep in step with the Spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. And uh, this is probably the main command of the passage. That is the, the, the point at which Paul is driving here. Our job is to keep in step with the Spirit. He's going to show us how in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. But first, he wants to explain what it means. If we live by the Spirit, we must keep in step with the Spirit. And here's another verse uh, I've mentioned to you often that, that the Scriptures often place side by side God's sovereign control, that He has control over all things, and He makes things happen. For example, our sanctification, our growth in godliness but also our responsibility. That, that God is the one here who ultimately brings about our growth in godliness. We understand that. It is God who is at work within us. But at the same time, we have a responsibility to keep in step. 2 Corinthians 3 says that, uh, verse 18 says that we are transformed by the Word, that the Spirit is transforming our minds from one level of glory to the next as we reflect on the Word of God. It's something that God does through the Word, but at the same time, we uh, have we are not passive in this. right? We don't just sit back and let God do all the work as if uh, we have to do nothing. God gives us a responsibility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Romans 12, 1, that you should present your bodies as living sacrifices. We have a responsibility but in that responsibility, we ultimately recognize that God's the one bringing about the change. 
So our, we are commanded by our commanding officer, so to speak, to keep in step with the Spirit. And that means that we must be humble. Look at verse 26. This requires humility. Keeping in step with the Spirit requires humility. Verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The reason that keeping in step with the Spirit requires humility is because the opposite of humility is what? Pride. And pride will lead to strife. That's what this verse says. If we we think about the implication of this verse, if we are if we are boastful, then we will be challenging one another and envying one another. It will result in a sinful disposition, envying, and it will result in outward conflict, challenging one another. That comes from a prideful heart. And so if we're going to keep in step with the spirit, it requires humility, not being Boastful. This reminds me of chapter 5, verse 15. Look up to that verse. Chapter 5, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Paul was saying there that the opposite of, of using your freedom to serve others, which is what freedom in Christ really frees us to do, it frees us to serve others. The opposite of that is using our freedom to spend it upon ourselves. And the result of that will be outward conflict. According to verse 15, it will be biting and devouring and eventually consuming one another. That's what's known as the as using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, as verse 13 says. But that's not how believers live. In fact, notice the descriptions that are given of unbelievers in verse 20. Remember this list of of vices, we say, the deeds of the flesh? Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery. Notice, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and verse 21, envying. So, if our lives are marked by conflict, constant conflict with other people, because our desires are not being met, then that really describes what an unbeliever lives like. So if we're going to keep in step with the Spirit, it requires humility on our part. The opposite of that will be pride, which will lead to strife and eventually consuming of one another. So we're commanded to here keep in step with the Spirit. How do we do that? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? Obviously, it requires humility, but but how precisely do we keep in step with the Spirit? And that's what verses 1-5 through of chapter 6 explain for us. Spirit-led believers keep in step with Him by serving one another and specifically by reducing their burden. That's what we are to do as members of Christ's body. We're supposed to reduce other people's burdens. And there's two specific ways we do that in this passage. Number one, Verses 1 through 3. We reduce the burden of other believers by helping to carry their load. We reduce the burden of other believers by helping to carry their load. Look at verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. In these verses, 
there are three commands. One of them takes the force of a command. It's not really a command in the Greek language, but I'll show you, show you which one. First command is restore in verse 1. Restore such a one. We have a responsibility to restore those who are trapped in sin back to a place of, of righteousness. So that's the first command. The second one is at the end of verse 1, looking to yourself. This takes the force of a command. So while you're restoring that person, you need to look to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And the third command is found in verse 2. Do you see it? Bear one another's burdens. This third command, which comes in verse 2, is really the main command of this section. And that is that the way that we bear others' burdens is by doing what verse 1 said. The way that we bear others' burdens specifically is by restoring them and doing it while we're looking to ourselves so that we won't be tempted. So let's, let's see what's going on here. We reduce the burden of other believers by bearing their load, help bearing their load. Notice verse 1, even if anyone is caught in a trespass. This sin refers to probably an unexpected sin. He's caught. It's like uh, someone walking through the woods and there's a trap there, maybe a bear trap, and they get their foot caught in it. It's unexpected. They didn't plan for it. They weren't searching for the trap so they could put their foot in it. I want to see what this feels like. Or let's see how strong this thing is. Right? They, they get trapped in it. It was unexpected. Perhaps it was one of these sins that was listed in verses 19, 19 through 21. Perhaps it was a sin of immorality or a sin of idolatry or a sin of, of personal conflict. They were caught in it. Remember, we said that those the unbelievers are marked by those who actually are practicing those things. They continually practice those things. They enjoy the things. They don't care what other people think about it. They simply go and do them. But believers, we could say, fall back into those on occasion. They don't practice them. Those aren't the characteristics. No one would ever describe us as an immoral person or or or, or whatever, or person of conflict. And so what Paul is talking about here is someone who's trapped in it. So that means that a believer could actually fall back into one of those sins listed in verses 19 through 21, and they're trying to get out. They don't want to be in that sin. They don't want that sin to plague them. And so Paul says here in verse 1, when that happens, our job is to restore them. And he tells who specifically is supposed to do it. Notice verse 1. You who, second line, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You who are spiritual. Now, what's Paul talking about here? Is he talking about some elite class of Christians who really got it all put together, right? No. Do you remember what a spiritual person is? It's a person who has the Spirit of God in him or her. Okay, someone who has the Spirit of God in him. It's that simple. But. There is another sense in which Paul uses the word spiritual to refer to someone who has the Spirit of God in them, but something more. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'll show you an example of this. Not talking about some special class of believers, but he's talking about a certain group of people that would be, that only would be 
qualified to do this type of service, to restore a person who's fallen into sin, who needs to be restored. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Okay, Paul basically makes a distinction here between the Corinthians and what they should be. The Corinthians were more like infants. They, they still needed the milk of the Word to drink. They, they didn't have sour, solid food. They weren't able to rece- receive the, the greater principles of the Scriptures yet. And so I could not, he says in verse 1, speak to you as spiritual. What do you, what do you think that idea is? Maturity, exactly. This has to do with maturity. That, now turn back to Galatians chapter 6 because this is the type of person that is qualified to restore a sinning brother or sister in Christ. A mature Christian. So this is, this is the idea. And that means that in order for you to be qualified to restore a member caught in sin, you must be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. You must be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Because here, these Corinthians, if someone had been trapped in sin, they weren't mature enough to restore them. Why? Because they weren't displaying the fruit of the Spirit themselves. He had to talk to them as fleshly because they were still following after their sinful desires when they should have been moved when they should have moved far beyond that. And so what I'm saying to you is that if you can't be loving and gentle and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and self-controlled, when you go to restore a person who is caught in a sin, then you are not qualified to do it. Don't do it. If you're not displaying the fruit of the Spirit, then you should not be restoring a sinning member. In fact, notice Paul specifically mentions one fruit that is absolutely required when restoring a person. Restore such a one, notice, in a spirit of what? Gentleness. One of the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever been in the hospital when a, a doctor with not very good bedside manners came to, 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 uh, to look at you? Oh, brother, you again? You're back here again? You broke your arm? What did you do this time? All right? How could you do you have any common sense? And that's not how we want to be helped when we're in a desperate state. Instead, we need a doctor who can sympathize with us, a doctor who knows what kind of pain we're going through. Perhaps he has been through that pain before himself. He knows the challenges that lie ahead. He knows the fears that we have in our minds right now because he's seen it or he's experienced it himself. And he also knows that he is one small accident away from being in the bed right next to us with the same exact problem. So if when you see a person trapped in sin, your first reaction is, to gawk or to criticize or to be harsh or to be judgmental, 
to lack sensitivity, then you are not mature spiritually and you are not qualified to restore such a person. Notice the goal. It is to restore such a one. It is restoration. Okay, so let's go back to our medical illustration. If your arm is broken and it needs to be reset, you don't need a medical student gazing on it and saying, wow, I haven't seen it that bad before. Come here. Let me show you this. Okay, we could, we could say like gossip for someone who's, who's sinning. Let's, let's talk about this. No, what do you need? You need it to be reset. You need someone who's there who's going to come and, and sympathize with you and recognize the potential dangers that lie ahead. Philip Ryken in his commentary said that, that we do the same things, thing as Christians when someone is caught in sin at our church. We stand around gazing at it and talking to others about it and never doing anything to help restore that person who's caught in sin. Our goal is to see that person restored and we do it with a sense of humility. Notice the potential danger on our part at the end of verse 1. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Like the doctor who has broken his arm before and who is well aware that he could just as easily break his arm tomorrow, or the doctor who diagnoses cancer in you while at the same time not being judgmental because he recognizes that he also could get cancer tomorrow. The same is true for us. We must be sure that we don't stand off at a distance and, and, and piously tell ourselves, that would never happen to me. Because we've got to watch out that we too are not tempted. We too do not fall into the exact same sin that we're trying to restore. If we come with an attitude of pride, looking at that person's sin, saying, never me, never. We don't understand the depravity of our own hearts. And when we help to, in contrast, when we help to restore a person who is caught in a sin back to a place where they are in a right standing before God and a right, uh, a right fellowship with God, we are doing what verse 2 tells us to do, and that is bearing their burden. Here's how we bear their burden. We help restore them to a place of fellowship with God. So the way that we reduce the burden of others is by helping to carry their burdens. Notice verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We help carry their load. They, they have been weighed down by this sin and they need help to get out of the pit that they've fallen into. And so we help carry the load. They can't get out on their own. There will be times in each of our lives, even mine, when we are trapped in sin, when we fall back into some kind of sin. And when that happens to one of us, the rest of us, who are walking by the Spirit, displaying the fruit of the Spirit, must come alongside and help bear that burden as they get out. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. There is a sense in which there is a sense in which these burdens cannot be bared alone, born alone, I should say. 
There is a sense in which that that, that requires more than one person. And obviously you know that ultimately God carries our burdens, right? First Peter 5 says, casting all your anxiety or your burdens on Him, for He cares for you. He's the one who carries our load, and that is true. But often, the means by which, and here's what I'm going to show you in 2 Corinthians 1, the means by which God carries your burden is on the backs of other Christians. Look at verse 3 with me. Grace, uh, excuse me, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Stop there. God is the one who comforts us in all of our affliction. When there is a difficulty, when there's a trial, when there's a sin that plagues us, God's the one who comes along and comforts us. How does He do this? who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now those are maybe somewhat confusing words, but if you step back and think about it, here's what Paul is saying. God is the one who comforts us in our affliction. And He does that. You may be going through an affliction right now and He comforts you. How does He do that? Or why does He do that? He does that so you can comfort other people when they are going through all sorts of different afflictions. Because you've already been comforted by God. And so what I'm telling you is that the means by which God will comfort that next person who has an affliction is through you. Yes, God can comfort people through His Word when they're sitting at their home all alone. Yes, but... But what the way He often does it is through you. And I think the same thing is true with regard to our sin. You can turn back to Galatians chapter 6. When we have fallen into a sin, and we have been restored by someone else, or help brought back, our burdens have been borne by someone else alongside of us, we now can help someone else. The means by which God carries our burdens is on the backs of other Christians. And when we do this, verse 2 says, we thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We fulfill the law of Christ. And 5.14 said that we fulfill the whole law. This was speaking the law of Moses. That is, the law of Moses could never produce love in a person. It could never change a person's heart. It only could conform them externally. But the law of Christ is different. The law of Christ works from the inside out. So that when we are bearing one another's burdens, we do what the law of Christ was intended to do. Help carry other people's loads. And one of the ways is through the comfort of another believer who has already been comforted by God. When we step alongside of that person, help carry their load, because we understand we've been there, or we know that we're one step away from getting there, we humbly come alongside and help carry their load. And again, verse 3, we must do this humbly. For if anyone thinks he has something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. Isn't it amazing how much humility plays into keeping in step with the Spirit? Keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. Verse 26, don't become boastful though. Watch out. Otherwise you'll be envying and challenging one another. Verse 1, Look to yourself. When you go to restore that person, you better look to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 
You come with an attitude of pride, it's not going to work. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Why is humility so important? Why is it so important for our keeping in step with the Spirit that we be humble? If you think about the opposite of that, we, I think we can understand. Because pride keeps us from serving. Proud people don't serve, do they? It's a great obstacle to service. And this passage is all about serving others by bearing their burdens. And if we're going to serve other people, which is what the law of Christ intended for us to do, then it requires humility. We're not going to serve in pride. Proud people make other people carry their loads because it's too below them, right? But humble people will carry any load that's put upon them. That's why humility is so important to this passage. So, the Spirit-led life looks like believers carrying the load of other believers, specifically in restoring them to a right fellowship with God. But it's also, here's another way we reduce the burden of other believers. We bear our own responsibilities. We bear our own responsibilities, verses 4 and 5. Paul sets up what seems like a paradox because he had already said, bear one another's burdens. You're going to see the opposite of that, what seems like the opposite in verse 5. But let's start in verse 4. Each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. But Paul... You just said we should bear one another's burdens. And now you're saying bear your own load. Now, in verse 5, he uses the word that's trans he uses two different words here by the way. Verse 2, notice, bear one another's burdens. That's a, that's one word in the Greek language. Verse 5, for each one will bear his own load. That's a different word in the Greek language. And so some people suggest that these two words suggest two different weights of load or two different uh, difficulties in bearing the load. That is, that these really heavy ones are like the load of a freighter. Like we can't bury it, bear it on our own. I can't carry that much weight, like a big piece of cargo that would go on a ship. I can't do that on my own. So I have to have other people bear it for me. But this other one here in verse 5 is more like a backpack. And so we carry our own load. We don't pass off our backpack to someone else. No, we, we just make them, uh, we just have them carry the, the really heavy ones. And quite frankly, that, that would make for some great application. I could really preach that. But that's not supported in how those words, those two words are used in the rest of the New Testament. The word in verse 2 for burdens, it could refer to a huge load like it does in Matthew chapter 20 when these workers are there in the vineyard and they feel like they have to bear all the brunt of the load and, and no one else is taking it for them. Or it could refer to a small load like it does in Acts chapter 15 verse 28. The same Greek word is used in both places referring to an extremely heavy load and a lighter load. The second word in verse 5 the word that's translated load there could be a small load like Matthew 11.30. My burden or my load is light, Jesus says. My yoke is easy and my burden 
My load is light. That's the word there. But it also could refer to a huge burden like a piece of cargo on a ship in Acts 27.10. And so while that that uh, understanding of, of Paul using these two words is tempting, it's, I don't think it really does justice to what Paul is trying to say. Turn back to, cha- to Luke chapter 11. Because I think this gets at the heart of what Paul is saying. Luke chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 45. Jesus is having a conversation here with the Pharisees. And he says in verse 45, One of the lawyers said to him in reply, or this is a commentary by Luke here. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What is Jesus saying here to these lawyers? You are happy to to load up other people with all their burdens when it comes to burdens that you should be bearing. You won't even touch them with your finger. You pass them off onto someone else. And so here's what Paul's getting at. Turn back to Ephesians 6. Or, I'm sorry, Galatians 6. Galatians 6. Paul's saying, he's getting back to the idea of humility again. It's not about you. Notice verse 4. This helps explain, I think, what he's saying in verse 5. Each one must examine his own work. That is, test yourself. Look at your own action, your own motives, and see if you are in line with what the Scriptures say. See if you are keeping in step with the Spirit. Not stepping out of line, trying to see how these other soldiers are doing in front of you. Keeping in step with what the Spirit says. So Paul's not calling for people to go around and examine everyone else. Okay, are you trapped in sin? Are are you trapped in sin? No, that that will become self-evidence. Like a platoon of soldiers who are out in the woods. What is our job as a soldier? Is it to go around and check to make sure that everyone is not caught in a trap? No, we keep our head going forward. We make sure that we're doing our job. And there will be occasions when one of them will be trapped and we go help them. But that will become evident. Our job is to make sure that we don't get trapped and 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 uh, keep following what the commander has told us to do. And that is focus on our own responsibility, on our own weight, our own sin. Focus more on our own sin than on the sin of others. Here's a huge problem that that happens in churches today. We spend more time worried about other people's sins when we haven't even looked inside of our own hearts. We're not concerned about our others, and so we're happy to load up other people with all their sin, their problems. We're not even willing to lift a finger to deal with our own. And so that means we need to have a self-evaluation. Look at verse 4 again. Each one must examine his own work. Examine it. Evaluate it. If you think you have a good evaluation of yourself, then you might want to just check with someone else who's close to you, someone in your family, someone who knows you well, and see if your evaluation is correct. The result of examining ourselves properly is that we will be able to, notice verse 4, 
we will have reason for boasting in regard to ourselves alone and not regard to another. Now, how could Paul be saying this? He just said, don't be boastful, verse 26. But I don't think Paul's talking about arrogance here. He's not saying we need to be arrogant about where we are, but rather, as Homer Kent says, a proper satisfaction that the believer can enjoy. Not an arrogance necessarily, but but a but a proper satisfaction that the believer can enjoy from knowing that his life and his labors are pleasing to God. It's a person who's checked for the beam in his own eye first before he goes after the splinter in someone else's. And once they have, okay, I've I've examined myself according to the scriptures, according to other people, how they view it as well, and I've examined that I am I am in good standing here with God. That's the type of boasting he's talking about, not not in a arrogant way, of course. So let me just make a few points of application in closing and uh, try to see how we can apply this to our lives. Before I move on, though, I want to say that Christ bore your greatest burden when He died for you. If you're here today and you're not clear on what having a Spirit-led life means, if you're not clear on how you can actually be led by the Spirit, then I would love to talk to you. And I think any of the members of the church would as well. But Christ bore your, your greatest burden. But, but the way that He bears your burdens now, your day-to-day struggles, particularly when you fall into sin, is through His people. So if we're going to be led by the Spirit, according to this passage, we must serve others by reducing their burden. We reduce their burden by helping to carry their load, help restoring them when they fall, and also making sure that we take care of our own responsibilities. Are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Are you walking by the Spirit? If so, that means that you have a humble assessment of yourself. You're happy to serve other people. You're happy to bury bear the burdens of other people, even if it's heavy. Are you doing that? You say, well, I think I am. Well, let me ask you a question. When you come to join in fellowship with other believers on Sunday or Wednesday, and you begin talking to people, do you dominate the conversation? Are you quick to want them to know all of your problems, or do you have any concern for that other person's problems? What kind of struggles they are going through? Or are you most concerned with them helping to bear your load? Spiritual people, those who are keeping in step with the Spirit, bear the burdens of others by helping bear their load. Are you doing that? Paul's talking about a specific way we can do it by helping restoring someone who's fallen into sin. In order for restoration to happen, Paul says, you who are spiritual must do this. And so let me make some specific application for each one of us. Do you see why it's so important for you to guard your own heart? To guard your own life? I've mentioned uh, several other times before that our sin affects more than just us. When we sin, it's not like we just sin in a bubble. No one else is affected by it. It affects our family. It affects our church. It affects people we work with, our, uh, potentially people we, we live nearby. 
So our sin affects more than just us. But here's the, the converse of that that is also true. Your righteousness affects more than just you. Your spirituality does not affect just you. It's not just for your benefit. It's actually for the benefit of other people. That is that they need you. When they have fallen into the sin, perhaps they've even been deceived about a certain sin. They're trapped. They can't get out. Maybe they want to get out. Maybe they don't know they need to get out. But you have to be there. And the only people that are qualified for that are people who are mature Christians. Spiritual ones. So the way we serve others is by helping carry their heavy burden. But the second way that we serve others, verses 4 and 5, is by not passing our own load onto them. If you are constantly bringing up your petty problems to other people so that they will commiserate with you, then you are disobeying this verse. You're not carrying your own load. It's time to, as my children's kindergarten teacher used to say, buck up. Hey, when they get a little scrape or something, buck up. You're going to be fine. Paul says if you're not bearing your own load, you are actually adding an unnecessary burden to someone else. And that way, you are not fulfilling the law of Christ. You are proudly passing all your problems onto other people when you should be bearing them yourself. And so that requires, on our part, humility. This passage is all about humility. You cannot serve others in pride. If you care more about yourself than other people, you will not be able to obey this passage. Because only humble people serve. Only humble people serve. When you walk through the airport and you need to get your shoes shined, you don't see the shoe shiner sitting up at the top of the seat saying, stick your foot up here. I'm ready to, to, to help you uh, get your shoes shined, right? No, he comes down. Here, you sit up in a place of prominence. I'm going to come below you and I'm going to serve you. He needs to come down from his pedestal. Maybe you're thinking about some loads that you've had to bear unnecessarily from others. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I know someone that really is bearing or that passing on their load to me, which they should be bearing themselves. And if so if you think that, okay, from I'm going to go home and I'm going to categorize people in our church. The people who are the burden bearers and the people who are the burden dumpers. And I'm going to categorize them because I know a couple other people in this church who need this message. And you miss the point if that's what you get out of this. Because you think it's about you. When really, it's about everyone else. It's about serving the needs of others. The point is, is that if you are led by the Spirit, you will keep in step with the Spirit, which means that you will serve other people by burying their, bearing their heavy burdens and carrying your own load. So you will not become more of a burden to them. The church of Jesus Christ is not about you individually. It's not about you. It's about you corporately. It's about us. It's about Christ. It's about 
how Christ is going to fulfill His purposes through us, through us serving one another. And the way that we serve Christ is by serving others. Okay, well, who's going to carry my load? If I'm concerned about my load and the concern, concerned about the load of other people, who's going to help me? And I would say, don't worry about that. Don't worry about your own load. God will take care of that. God will provide people and His own Word to help carry your load. Don't worry about that. If you're more concerned about that, then you'd understand how God has provided for you when you serve, there is an there's a sense of refreshment even in times when you are drained physically. God will be with you all the way. Serve others by bearing their burdens and bearing your own load. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the supreme example that we have in Jesus Christ who bore our burdens. Who was more humble than He to come to this earth, earth as the God of the universe, the Creator, sustainer of all things, and stoop to wash some dirty feet. It is simply amazing to see that, that Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And how much more should we have that same mission philosophy in our lives. That when we come to church each week, our goal should not be, all right, who can serve me? But rather, how can I serve someone else today? And that requires on our part a whole transformation in our thinking because from the time we were young, we, can, we were concerned with nothing more than ourselves and satisfying our own needs. And we still are. And we need the transforming power of Your grace through Your Spirit as He works through the Word to change our hearts. To help us to look, instead of inward, how am I going to be taken care of? We should look outwardly, how can I take care of other people? Lord, I pray that You'd help me to be a servant. pray that You would help each person in here who sees the need to serve more, to, to, to think practically how they can help bear other people's burdens and also carry their own responsibilities. We need your wisdom in life from day to day. And we also need reminders from time to time because we forget these things. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.